It's been decided that you will be dressed as a priest to help you get away in the pandemonium afterwards. Chun Jin will give you a two-piece Soviet Army sniper's rifle that fits nicely into a special bag. There's a spotlight booth that won't be in use. It's up under the roof on the 8th Avenue side of the garden. You will have absolutely clear, protected shooting. You are to shoot the presidential nominee through the head. And Johnny will rise gallantly to his feet and lift Ben Arthur's body in his arms and stand in front of the microphones and begin to speak. The speech is short, but it's the most rousing speech I've ever read. It's been worked on here and in Russia on and off for over eight years. I shall force someone to take the body away from him. Then Johnny will really hit those microphones and those cameras with blood all over him fighting off anyone who tries to help him, defending America even if it means his own death, rallying a nation of television viewers into hysteria to sweep us up into the White House with powers that will make martial law seem like anarchy. He just doing what kids do Teacher says Johnny ain't paying attention Gonna put him on drugs But they never mention the side effects of Making him violent and divining His parents are binding And before long he's lying And trying to hang himself in his own room Or sticking a nine in his mouth And making it go boom But the psychiatrist says We gotta see it through Did you know your brain chemistry is whacked? And all of these drugs are proven scientific fact But it's all an act of doctors a quack The studies jack modern psychiatry is smoking crack That's a fact Selective serotonin Reuptake inhibitors Welcome, my friends. Welcome to another edition of the Corbett Report. I am your host, James Corbett, podcasting to you, as always, from the sunny climes of western Japan on this 19th day of April, 2009. I'd like to take a moment to welcome all of my listeners and direct them, as always, to the websites CorbettReport.com and AlQaedaDoesn'tExist.com. And on a housekeeping note this week, I'd like to note that my listeners who have not yet done so might want to check out the articles section of CorbettReport.com, where the 2007 and 2008 article archives have been made more prominent, so it will be easier for you to browse through previous articles from the Corbett Report. Also, on the right-hand side of the Corbett Report homepage, you can now find a Site Search button, which will take you to a page where you can search through the entire CorbettReport.com site for given keywords. And also the article section will be getting even more of a facelift in the coming days, so make sure to check back to see the new look and feel of the article section. Also, I'm currently working on three upcoming projects for this year, which will continue to put the Corbett Report website further behind enemy lines in the Infowar. But in order to work on these projects and concentrate my attention on them to actually get them done, I'm afraid I'm going to have to take a couple of weeks off of the podcast. For that purpose, the podcast will be taking a hiatus until mid-May after this episode. Articles and videos may continue to appear sporadically throughout that period, especially updates to AlQaedaDoesn'tExist.com, but there will be no podcast episode until mid-May. Once again, thank you for all of your support, without which this podcast would not be possible, and please join me again in mid-May for the continuation of this podcast. But right now, let's get to today's real news. Today's first real news story comes from Deutsche Welle at dwworld.de. The 18th of April, 2009. Will Bagram become Obama's Guantanamo? 
While U.S. President Barack Obama has said he'll close the Guantanamo prisoner camp in Cuba, he's being criticized for following his predecessor's policy on the Bagram prison in Afghanistan. The new U.S. government disappointed human rights activists when it chose to adhere to the Bush administration's position that detainees imprisoned at the Bagram Air Base in Afghanistan have no right to challenge their confinement in U.S. courts. Critics have now begun referring to Bagram as Obama's Guantanamo. An estimated 650 inmates are being held at the prison north of Kabul, but the public rarely receives any details about how they're being treated, says German Green Party politician and Afghanistan expert Winfried Nachtwe. Up until now, I think it's only fair to describe Bagram as a black hole, he said. Aside from Red Cross officials, no outsiders are allowed to visit the prison, of which there are also no public photos. Only prison personnel and former inmates know for sure exactly what goes on at Bagram. Several thousand prisoners have passed through the compound in recent years, according to Ferdinand Mugenthaler of Amnesty International. In the initial period especially, there were many reports of torture and mistreatment at Bagram, he said. We know that prisoners were hung by chains from their hands, that they were deprived of sleep, and that they were locked up together in small cells in impossible conditions, and there were at least two deaths in which several soldiers were convicted, although their sentences were laughable. The U.S. government has defended its policy on Bagram, saying the prison is located in a war zone, and American law therefore doesn't apply. Unlike prisoners in Guantanamo, Bagram inmates have previously been unable to challenge their detention in U.S. courts. Today's second real news story comes from the Glenn Greenwald blog on Salon.com, April 13, 2009. An Emerging Progressive Consensus on Obama's Executive Power and Secrecy Abuses In the last week alone, the Obama DOJ a. attempted to shield Bush's illegal spying programs from judicial review by, yet again, invoking the very state secrets argument that Democrats spent years condemning, and by inventing a brand new sovereign immunity claim that not even the Bush administration espoused, and b argued that individuals abducted outside of Afghanistan by the U.S. and then rendered to and imprisoned in Bagram have no rights of any kind, not even to have a hearing to contest the accusations against them, even if they are not Afghans and were captured far away from any battlefield. These were merely the latest and among the most disturbing in a string of episodes in which the Obama administration has explicitly claimed to possess the very presidential powers that Bush critics spent years condemning as radical, lawless, and authoritarian. It is becoming increasingly difficult for honest Obama supporters to dismiss away or even minimize these criticisms and, especially, to malign the motives of critics. After all, the Obama DOJ's embrace of many, though by no means all, of the most radical and extremist Bush-Cheney positions, and the contradictions between Obama's campaign claims and his actions as president, are now so glaring and severe that the harshest denunciations of Obama's actions are coming from those who, during the Bush years, were held up by liberals and by Obama supporters as the most trustworthy and praiseworthy authorities on these matters. Josh Marshall's Talking Points memo surveyed a panel of experts last week, including one from Center for American Progress, headed by Obama Transition Chief John Podesta, to ask and answer these questions about Obama's argument in the illegal surveillance case. Does it represent a continuation of the Bushies' obsession with putting secrecy and executive power above basic constitutional rights? Is it a sweeping power grab by the executive branch that sets up a broad and dangerous precedent for future cases by asserting that the government has the right to get lawsuits dismissed merely by claiming that state secrets are at stake without giving judges any discretion whatsoever? In a word, yes. Senator Russ Feingold, probably the single most praised liberal politician of the last eight years, declared himself troubled by the Obama administration's conduct on secrecy and illegal surveillance, and said he would seek to enact legislation to limit Obama's powers as soon as possible. Nancy Pelosi vowed congressional action to limit the Obama DOJ's position, proclaiming, 
we can never have a repetition of what was done under the Bush administration or a continuation of that. With each decision to cover for their predecessors, the Obamaites become retroactively complicit in them. Our final real news story today comes from the telegraph.co.uk, 15th of April 2009. Inbreeding caused demise of the Spanish Habsburg dynasty, new study reveals. One of Europe's most powerful royal dynasties was so obsessed with securing its blue-blooded inheritance through family marriages that it brought about its own extinction through inbreeding, scientists have found. The Habsburgs ruled Spain from 1516 to 1700, presiding over the first global empire, but died out after generations of intermarriage, according to the first genetic analysis of the family. The royal fashion of marrying relatives to preserve the dynastic heritage culminated in a monarch who was so genetically inbred that he was unable to provide an heir, and power passed to the French Bourbons. The dynasty was one of the most important and influential royal families in Europe. Branches of the family ruled Austria, Hungary, Belgium, the Netherlands, the German Empire, and Spain. Scientists have examined the family tree of the last of the Spanish Habsburgs, King Charles II, who died in 1700 at the age of 39, and discovered that, as a result of repeated marriages between close relatives, he was almost as inbred as the offspring of an incestuous relationship between a brother and sister or father and daughter. The study found that 9 out of 11 marriages in the 200 years were between first cousins or uncles and nieces, producing a small gene pool that made rare recessive genetic illnesses more prevalent. Only half of the babies born to the dynasty during the period studied lived to see their first birthday, compared with about 80% of children in Spanish villages at the time. The study, published this week in the journal Public Library of Science 1, indicated that Charles II suffered from two separate rare genetic conditions, which were almost certainly the result of his ancestors' marriage patterns, and which effectively assured that the dynasty died out with him. Welcome, my friends. Welcome to episode 84 of the Corbett Report. April is the cruelest month. Indeed, tomorrow, April 20th, 2009, marks the 10th anniversary of the horrific school shooting at Columbine High School in Littleton, Colorado. And as always, around an anniversary like this, we will see many anniversary stories start to appear in the papers and on TV. Like the recent episode of The Oprah Winfrey Show which featured an FBI investigator into the Columbine Massacre sharing his thoughts about the killers, Harris and Klebold. And on the basement tapes, these tapes that they did from his basement, mm -hmm. uh, they talk about planning it and how they want uh, to see the destruction and very vividly uh, indicating how they want to destroy people. Yes, they do. And... Uh, you know, th their personalities were different. E Eric was filled more with the rage and anger and was, in my view, much more the planner. Dylan provided the, the energy and, and uh, the kind of the excitement uh, and the two of them together. Um, energy and excitement. I thought he was depressed. Uh, he, he would, through his writings and in the basement tape, he would uh, at some times be saying, you know, my life is just terrible, you know, no one likes me, I, I'm a terrible person. And then he would find a young lady that he thought was his soulmate. And in his writings, he would draw large hearts and on, on, his, on a highway where he thought his, heart's true, his true love was and would talk about that. But he never had the courage to go up and talk to the young lady. Mm -hmm. So now, two months later, he's down in the deepest depression again. Of course, there is no doubt that what happened at Columbine High School on that fateful day was the work of deranged madmen and mass murderers. But there are certain things that the hard-hitting investigative journalist Oprah Winfrey would not tell you in clips such as the one we just listened to. For example, the person that we were just listening to was Dwayne Fuselier, the lead FBI investigator into the Columbine Massacre. 
And one does not have to dig very deeply into his past and the publicly available record to find some troubling connections. This comes from an AP article from April 1999 under the headline, FBI Investigator's Son Linked to Case. Quote, One of the students who helped produce a 1997 video that's similar to the April 20th assault on Columbine High School is the son of the FBI's lead agent in the investigation. The disclosure came as FBI agents sought lie detector tests on people who were close to Eric Harris and Dylan Claybold, the two gunmen who stormed Columbine. FBI agent Dwayne Fuselier, a psychologist, is one of three investigators heading the probe of the deadliest school shooting in U.S. history. His son, 19-year-old Scott Fuselier, was one of those who helped produce the 1997 film, which has not been linked to Harris or Claybold. In a call to the agent's home, a woman who answered the phone said, Scott and the boys that are with that movie don't want to talk about it. In a later call, Dwayne Fuselier refused to comment. You can stop right there. Nothing. Goodbye, he said Thursday evening when a reporter began asking about his son's connection to the video. The film depicts gun-toting, trench-coat-wearing students moving through Columbine's halls and ends with a special effects explosion of the school. The videotape was obtained by the syndicated television show Inside Edition. It was broadcast Wednesday. When asked about the connection between Fusilier's son and the 1997 movie, FBI spokesman Gary Gomez said, That's a non-issue, and I'm not going to comment on what kids are making in their video productions. Asked whether the FBI would be concerned if the agent's son had been involved in making the video, Gomez said, No, there would be no concern by the FBI. End quote. I invite my listeners to cogitate on that story. The FBI, in its infinite wisdom, chose out of all of the agents that it could have appointed to lead this investigation, the father of one of the sons of the very school involved in this shooting? And not just a random student in the school, no, one of the students who made the black trench coat gun-toting video, which was made two years before that very scene then played out, in the very horrific scenario that his father would then be investigating? Indeed, Scott Fuselier, Dwayne Fuselier's son, was one of the founding members of the Trenchcoat Mafia, which Harris and Claybold were later connected to. Does that not strike anyone as slightly odd that the FBI would choose this person as heading the investigation? Well, of course it does, and it should. But I suppose the real question then becomes, is there anything that we can say that the investigation did not adequately look into that might be highly suspicious in light of such a bizarre connection between the lead investigator and one of the people who was involved in the very organization that was later then blamed for the attack. Well, of course, one could look at the Columbine Eight Years Later story from whatreallyhappened.com. And again, of course, all of the links to all of the documents cited in today's episode are available from the documentation list under today's episode at corbettreport.com. But the Columbine Eight Years Later article lists 101 eyewitness accounts that suggest there were at least three, if not four, shooters on that day. I would also direct my listeners to a video recently put out by the website columbinefamilyrequest.org, a relatively new website set up by Columbine family members seeking to bring to light previously uninvestigated details of that horrific shooting. And that website has a very interesting video showing many important key pieces of information and evidence that the police already had on Harris and Claybold before the shooting took place, including a search warrant to check their homes for pipe bombs, which was never served. Again, these are things that I think any normal investigation would want to look into, but apparently not the one headed up by Dwayne Fuselier. There are also stories like this one from CBS News, December 27, 2001. Family, Columbine student killed by cop. Quote, The family of slain Columbine student Daniel Rohrbach claims a Denver police officer killed the boy as the youth fled the massacre inside the school. 
A motion filed in federal court said Sergeant Dan O'Shea, a member of the SWAT team during the April 20th, 1999 shootings, was identified through testimony by a school administrator, Celine Marquez, who said O'Shea told her two days after the shooting that he feared he may have shot an innocent student. The motion asks the judge to reconsider the dismissal of a lawsuit brought against the Jefferson County School District and Sheriff's Office. Brian Rohrbach has long claimed his son was shot by a lawman rather than by one of the student gunmen firing from inside the school because of the angle of his fatal chest wound. According to the motion, O'Shea's handwritten police report stated he shot a 9mm machine gun from the base of a hill on which Rohrbach was shot and killed. Rohrbach's wounds were consistent with the student facing downhill and O'Shea firing from below, the motion said. End quote. And that story played out in January of 2002 with another story, this one from the DenverChannel.com, January 11th, 2002, Columbine Parent Releases Ballistics Report. Quote, After meeting with the Arapahoe County Sheriff on Friday, Brian Rohrbach said he was convinced more than ever that it was a law enforcement officer and not Columbine gunman who killed his son, Danny Rohrbach. In fact, he released a new ballistics report that he said proves his case. According to the Rohrbach's, Danny Rohrbach's autopsy showed that he was killed by a bullet that was fired from the front in an upward trajectory. What's in front of Danny Rohrbach? Law enforcement shell casings, Rohrbach's attorney Barry Arrington said. The Rohrbach said that the ballistics map showed that there were no shell casings from Harris or Claybold in the area where the shot was fired. However, there were three 9mm shell casings found near Danny's body that belonged to Denver SWAT officer Dan O'Shea, Rohrbach said. Rohrbach said that given that evidence, Harris and Claybold were not in a position to kill their son, but O'Shea was. End quote. Now, of course, all of this points to some very troubling aspects of the Columbine massacre that were not brought out in the official investigation, headed, of course, by Dwayne Fuselier and the FBI. But are there any other aspects of this investigation that bear looking into? Getting back to Columbine, the school that day was more than half empty. Hundreds of students and teachers admitted that uh, they were told, don't go to school today, something bad's going to happen. Harrison Kleibold, uh, the shooters, reportedly ran the school's internet. They had made a school film for drama where they went to the halls killing everyone. Uh, the, the son of the local FBI chief had founded the trench coat mafia two years before. Uh, they uh, were in 2020 and 2000 and, uh, in, in 1991, excuse me. In 1991, they had a 2020 special about death education, federal death education. You don't know what it is? Just Google death education 2020. It's, it, it, the text of the report's up online from uh, now. How many years ago was that? 16 years ago, almost 17 years ago. And that's where they have the kids get in coffins. They, uh, they tell them, think about death, prepare for death. It caused a bunch of suicides at the school. See, advertising death, advertising suicide, since they had suicide education, more kids kill themselves. Now they're thinking about it. What 12, 13, 14-year-old thought about it before? These are federal numbers. Uh, just like now you do have some school shootings that aren't government ops or staged events or provocateur. There are nuts on Prozac and these other drugs. They're always on them. And it's copycats. They hear about it, and then they go out and commit it. But each of these last five mall shootings have happened to the day, always one month later, or 30 days later, um, but but the whole point here is is that the Denver Post and Rocky Mountain News reported that the SWAT teams shot at least two of the students. That's in my film Road to Tyranny, and that came out. But they were told to shut up about it. Uh, the SWAT team stayed outside for four hours, 15 minutes. There were all this weird federal activity right before it happened, and then you find out that Harris and Clybold, both their parents, were involved in black op uh, work for NASA and the Pentagon, and it just gets weirder and weirder and weirder and weirder from there on out. And the reason we talk about mind control, in 1977, they had congressional hearings on MK Ultra, MK Naomi, and a bunch of others. And uh, now that it's even been on Discovery Channel, History Channel, a lot of you probably saw it. I remember a two-hour special about eight years ago that blew me away because I'd read all this, but to see it on television, Dr. Ewing Cameron was the head of the testing program, the head of the field program was Jolly and West, Dr. Jolly and West. But Dr. Ewing Cameron took several thousand 
children and teenagers out of institutions. He took them to a CIA research facility in Toronto. This is all declassified. This is in the 60s and 70s. We don't have anything declassified after that. And they would put them on LSD, PCP, uh, peyote, mescaline. They would do shock treatments. They would uh, do sensory uh, deprivation. All the Manchurian-type candidate things the Russians had invented. And, and Pavlov had, 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 had you know, first started developing. And they were able to take someone and completely erase their memory, compartmentalize their mind, and give them keywords. It would take years. But if you gave them a keyword uh, to, it was pretty elementary at first, use the bathroom, jump on the floor, bang your head in the wall, go to sleep. Uh, you could literally program them with words. And so that's where you hear, quote, about mind control. Remember Sirhan Sirhan, right when Bobby Kennedy got nominated for president, he won the nomination, he goes to announce it, and the L.A. coroner, this is official L.A. coroner, this is not a conspiracy theory, said he'd been shot three times, was it four times, you can go read the coroner report online, in the back. Sirhan Sirhan pulled out a revolver and fired wildly at the ceiling, and then someone from in front of Bobby Kennedy, and, and, and folks had seen him with this woman in a polka dot address. Sir and Sir had been a mental patient. She gave him a coffee. He went into some type of amnesic state. Uh, he'd been drugged. And then he wildly fires from in front, from more than a dozen feet away. And then somebody behind Bobby shoots him multiple times in the back. And the powder burns blew uh, huge holes in his jacket and caught him on fire. But again, you've got to have the patsy out, totally drugged out of his mind, mental patient, just just f saying he remembers nothing, just firing wildly. They have to use those drugged out mental patients because uh, in, in the case of CIA operative, that's now been declassified, Lee Harvey, oh, you didn't know that's been declassified, that he was a CIA officer? Yeah, his case number's been released now, that's been declassified. Uh, and uh, he'd been a fake defector to the Soviets and the rest of him at a super secret YouTube base in uh, in. Uh, Japan and sent to the Russians, then allowed to come back into the U.S. with his bride. Uh, remember, he comes in and says, I'm a patsy, I'm a patsy, I've been set up. Well, then they had to send in Jack Ruby, the mob boss. The cops hold him up, they're ready for him to shoot him, and he shoots him multiple times in the chest. See, it's the same thing. Now, I mentioned Jolly and West was the head of field operations for the CIA in the declassified MK Ultra hearings in 1977. This is all declassified, go read it online. The Library of Congress or thomas.loc.gov. It's, it's, it's on the congressional record. This is all admitted. Jolly and West ran field operations, and they did all sorts of tests uh, in the public, on the military, you name it. Guess who McVeigh, guess who Timothy McVeigh's doctor was from the time he was arrested, always by his side, always living wherever he was at, during the Denver trial, and during the four or five years he was at Terre Haute awaiting execution. Guess who was there the day he was executed? Dr. Jolly and West. In front of everyone, they have one of the twin kings of modern U.S. mind control, the admitted director of field operations, MK Ultra, MK Naomi, the, the, the king of mind control and Manchurian candidates is the government-appointed psychiatrist for Timothy McVeigh. Go check that out for yourself right now. Then Governor Keating's brother, a year before the 1995 bombings, the Alfred Building, writes a book. This is all in my film, Road to Tyranny. And in the book, a Tom McVeigh bombs the Federal Building. I mean, you couldn't make this type of stuff up. And you say, well, how do we know McVeigh was mind control? So what? He had a mind control doctor. The state police reported he was driving erratically down the road an hour after in this big yellow old you know, late modeled car with no license plates. He pulls over. There's a handgun on the dash. He stumbles out on the ground. He's foaming at the mouth and he's screaming, it hurts, it hurts. Get the chip out of my rear end. This was in the Daily Oklahoma. Get it out, get it out, the chip hurts. Now, I don't believe he actually had a chip. He may have. The point is that that's exactly the type of psychological torture where they electroshock you, torture you, give you drugs to cause painful hallucinations combined, and then they give you another drug to make the pain go away within seconds, and they'll have a keyword that makes you have the pain, then they'll have a keyword that makes the pain go away. And he did have a cell phone in the car. So the point is, he gets the call, he's given the code words, 
that puts him into the mode. Now, now again, why is he stumbling around, literally drooling, saying the chip, it hurts, help me, officer, help me? Why? Why is McVeigh doing this? I mean, this happened. Okay, I, I'm asking police out there, what do you think? And then they appoint the top mind control scientist, by the way, just died last year, Jolly and West, to shadow him as government appointed. See, I mean, that's why we get into things like this that seem absurd, but when you actually do the research, it's documented that something's going on. That, of course, was none other than Alex Jones from The Alex Jones Show from December 9th, 2007. Alex is quite right to say that this does get into some very strange subject matter, but, of course, as we know, life is often much stranger than fiction, even fiction written by the governor of Oklahoma's brother that just happens to have a Tom McVeigh bombing the Oklahoma City Federal Building a year before it happens. Yes, very, very strange indeed. But, again, a lot of this is documentable. Indeed, it's easy enough to find sources, and, again, please check the documentation list for today's episode to take a look at some of these sources that show that, indeed, Timothy McVeigh really did claim to some of his associates that he had been microchipped by the U.S. Army during his time in Iraq. Of course, again, this does not mean that he really was microchipped or was really being mind-controlled through some sort of satellite device, but at the very least, he seemed to believe it, or at least tell people that that was the case. And we can, of course, document that, indeed, Timothy McVeigh really was actually in the U.S. Army after he was supposedly discharged, according to the official account of his military career, that coming in 2006 from a 1993 video, again, this being after McVeigh was supposedly discharged from the Army, a 1993 video of him training at Camp Grafton military base in North Dakota, which, of course, just happens to specialize in explosives training. And, of course, we all know about the hundreds of other pieces of evidence that conclusively prove that the Oklahoma City bombing was not what the official story tells us it was. And for more on that, of course, I would refer my listeners back to episode 38 of this podcast, OKC Was an Inside Job. Now, there are also some more esoteric aspects to what Alex was just talking about there, including Dr. Lewis Jollyon West, a member of the MK Ultra program, the now declassified and fully admitted CIA program of mind control and mind control experimentation that took place at least in the 50s and 60s when it was officially discontinued on unwitting subjects being subjected to barbarous treatments at the hands of people like Dr. Ewan Cameron, who was operating in Montreal, Canada. And again, this is all declassified, fully documented. It's come out in congressional inquiries, and I'll even put a link up to Bill Clinton apologizing for the entire MKUltra program. So again, this is not some kind of bizarre shadowy UFO conspiracy theory. No, this is actual documented history, and if you don't know about it, that's because you are ignorant of it. But having said that, I'm not sure about the connection between Dr. Lewis West and Timothy McVeigh. I have no reason to doubt that there was such a connection, but if there was, I have yet to find very hard documented proof of that connection. I have come across websites claiming that CNN reported at the time of the Oklahoma City bombing that Dr. Lewis West was part of a team from the American Psychological Association, which had been sent to Oklahoma to counsel people in the wake of the attacks. And there are several websites claiming that Timothy McVeigh indeed had met with Dr. Lewis West both before and after the attacks. But... Yet, I have no hard documentable evidence of this. I have no news wires or anything mentioning the connection between the two. And there are no court documents that I can find online that mention that. But again, as always, I invite, encourage, and exhort my listeners to do the research for themselves. And by all means, if you do find any documentation of the link between Dr. Lewis Jollyon West one of the heads of the MK Ultra Mind Control Experimentation Program, and Timothy Gouvet, by all means, please let me know. 
But at any rate, as I say, I'll put up some links to, for you to find out more about MK Ultra in the documentation list for today's episode, and more about Dr. Lewis West, who indeed really was Jack Ruby's psychologist and the guy who declared Jack Ruby insane for having suggested that the JFK assassination might have been a conspiracy. <laughs> what an insane conspiracy theorist. At any rate, jumping from Columbine to OKC may not be so bizarre as it seems at first. Columbine happened on April 20th, 1999, and OKC happened on April 19th, 1995. There are some suggestions that have been made that Harrison Claybold chose their date as an homage to Timothy McVeigh, or an attempt to upstage McVeigh's mass murder with what they hoped would be an even greater mass murder, although that has not been verified as far as I can tell. But certainly, the OKC bombing and the April 19th date has been linked back to Waco and the April 19th, 1993 siege of the Waco compound. And indeed, it is right around this time that we have just entered into, between April 19th and May 1st, that a lot of these bizarre mass murders and mass shootings tend to be taking place in recent years for whatever reason. And it's from this collection of mass murder events that we can start to see a grisly pattern taking shape. Another data point in this trail comes from April 19th, 2007, from PrisonPlanet.com. Sungwi Cho was a mind-controlled assassin. I quote now from the middle of that article. Quote, From the very first reports of the shootings, we predicted the killer would be on Prozac would have recently been in psychiatric care, and would have regularly played violent video games, and that has precisely turned out to be accurate in all three instances. Several Korean youths who knew Cho Sung-wee from his high school days said he was a fan of violent video games, particularly a game called Counter-Strike, a hugely popular online game in which players join terrorism or counter-terrorism groups and try to shoot each other using all types of guns, reports Newsmax, citing the Washington Post. In December 2005, more than a year before Monday's mass shootings, a district court in Montgomery County, Virginia, ruled that Cho presented an imminent danger to self or others. That was the necessary criterion for a detention order so that Cho, who had been accused of stalking by two female schoolmates, could be evaluated by a state doctor and ordered to undergo outpatient care, reports ABC News. But despite the court identifying the future killer as a risk, they let him go. Investigators believe that Cho Sung-wee, the Virginia Tech murderer, had been taking antidepressant medication at some point before the shootings, according to the Chicago Tribune. Columbine shooters Eric Harris and Dylan Claybold, as well as 15-year-old Kip Kinkle, the Oregon killer who gunned down his parents and classmates, were all on psychotropic drugs. Scientific studies proving that Prozac encourages suicidal tendencies in young people are voluminous and span back nearly a decade. Jeff Weiss, the Red Lake High School killer, was on Prozac. Unabomber Ted Kaczynski, Michael McDermott, John Hinckley Jr., Brian Uyesugi, Mark David Chapman, and Charles Carl Roberts IV, the Amish school killer, were all on SSRI psychotropic drugs. Since these deadly drugs are prevalent in almost all mass shooting incidents, where is the call to ban Prozac? Why is the knee-jerk reaction always to attack the Second Amendment rights of Americans to self-defense, a right that was exercised in January 2002 when students subdued a shooter at another Virginia university before he could kill more than three people because they were allowed guns on campus? Why are the deeper reasons behind what motivates young men to kill pushed aside while control freaks demand that law-abiding citizens be disarmed of the only thing that can protect them from such madmen? End quote. Of course, that article was about the Virginia Tech shootings that happened in April of 2007, but again, it's not hyperbole for that article to claim that almost all mass shootings involve shooters on antidepressants, Specifically, that class of antidepressants known as Selective Serotonin Reuptake Inhibitors, or SSRIs, of which the best-known member of that family is Prozac. 
Indeed, there is a voluminous scientific literature showing an actual scientifically provable connection between SSRIs and an increase in suicidal tendencies. And just the latest contribution to that growing scientific literature about the dangers of SSRIs is a study in the Spring 2009 Journal of American Physicians and Surgeons by Dr. Joel Kaufman entitled Selective Serotonin Reuptake Inhibitor SSRI Drugs More Risks Than Benefits. And again, if you are looking for this in the coverage of pretty much any mass shooting, you will eventually find that, yes, the shooter was on SSRIs. Uh, Just some more data points in that. You might look at articles such as Psychotropic Drugs and Gun-Free Zones, Again, the Cocktail for a Killer, from February 16th, 2008, PrisonPlanet.com, talking about Northern Illinois University shooter Stephen Kazmierczak, who, of course, was on psychotropic drugs. And this story from naturalnews.com from March 13th, 2009, psychiatric drug use of German shooter confirmed, Kretschner withdrawing from depression treatment. Again, I would suggest as a test that my listeners take any mass shooting incident from the last 10 years and try to ascertain whether or not the shooter had been on or recently withdrawn from SSRIs. But as that last article from March 2009 might tend to indicate, yes, once again, we are entering the season of mass shootings and mass murders. And of course, that shooting season has been particularly horrifying this year, with dozens of people killed in several incidents around the U.S. in the last month. And of course, one of the most grisly was this incident. But reports say that five Pittsburgh police officers have been injured in a standoff stemming from a domestic dispute at a home in Stanton Heights. Joining me now on the phone, David Raleigh from KQV Radio in Pittsburgh. David, welcome back. You were speaking with us earlier. First of all, David, we are also getting reports that there are officers that have been killed in this standoff. Do you know anything on that front? Can you confirm nor deny that? Yes, at this point we have confirmation from the medical examiner's office of two fatalities. Mm. There are reports, and some people have confirmed that another uh, police officer has uh, been considered, has suffered fatal wounds during this incident, which started shortly after 8 p.m. in the Stanton Heights neighborhood of Pittsburgh, where uh, apparently police were going to answer a domestic violence call. Uh, Gunshots rang out shortly after that. So at least one of the wounded officers was in a position where uh, other officers could not retrieve him uh, due to the fact that it was still an active situation and he was in the line of sight of the uh, gunman. Uh, we do not know if those people have been recovered. I do see at least two vans from the medical examiner's office um, where they have the press barricaded off at waiting to get through. We are right behind the command post where it's been set about two blocks away from where the shooting happened. Of course, the recent shooting spree of unemployed 22-year-old Richard Poplowski is particularly interesting in this spread of data points of recent mass murder shootings because Richard Poplowski was apparently a fan of online conspiracy theories. This comes from a Raw Story article on April 5th, 2009, entitled, Pittsburgh Shooter Was Fan of Online Conspiracy Theories. Quote, the unemployed 22-year-old man who killed three Pittsburgh police officers and wounded two others in a four-hour shootout on Saturday morning had been heavily influenced by extremist conspiracy theories prior to the incident. Many of his ideas appear to have come from obscure sources. Poplowski's best friend, Edward Perkovich, told the Post-Gazette, he was really into politics and really into the First and Second Amendment. We recently discovered that 30 states had declared sovereignty. One of his concerns was why were these major events in America not being reported to the public. The Post-Gazette also mentions the conspiracy theory website Prison Planet, run by radio talk show host Alex Jones, as a source for some of Poplowski's more off-the-wall notions. Last fall, that site ran an article, U.S. Troops in Homeland Crowd Control Patrols from October 1st, which claimed that U.S. troops returning from duty in Iraq will be carrying out homeland patrols in America from October 1st in complete violation 
of Posse Comitatus for the purposes of helping with civil unrest and crowd control, which could include dealing with unruly Americans after a complete economic collapse. Poplowski had also posted pictures of himself at Stormfront, a white supremacist website whose slogan is White Pride Worldwide. The discussion of the shootings at Stormfront, which began with speculations that the gunman would turn out to be some non-white, or a Jew, then turned to suspicions that the recent rash of shootings is a setup to push through gun control legislation, has become oddly muted since the revelation that Poplowski appears to be one of theirs. End quote. Now, of course, I'm sure it will be lost on none of my listeners that not only does that article attempt to put Alex Jones in the same light as white supremacist organizations like the Stormfront, but also that it takes from Alex Jones's Prison Planet article about U.S. troops in Homeland Crowd Control patrols from October 1st, which directly quotes from an Army Times article from September 2008. Of course, this is the exact same article that a Corbett Report article also picked up on. From September 21st, 2008, U.S. Army invades U.S. And of course, the relevant quotation from that Raw Story article is merely a quotation from the Army Times article itself. In effect, what the Raw Story article is saying is that simply because Prison Planet picked up on an Army Times article and posted quotations from that article and drew inferences from that article, it is a bizarre conspiracy theory website that somehow motivated a cop-killing American who is clearly deranged. Of course, it should be noted that there was an InfoWars article from the very next day, April 6, 2009, which completely and utterly debunked that ridiculous notion. Under the headline, Poplowski Smears Debunked, Cop Killer Held Opposing Views to InfoWars, which in fact shows that while Poplowski did indeed comment directly on InfoWars.com articles, it was simply to degrade and rage against Alex Jones for not being against the Jews. Now, of course, the ridiculous attempt to link Alex Jones, Infowars, and Prison Planet to the white supremacists at Stormfront was immediately and totally debunked, requiring Raw Story to completely rewrite their article to totally excise Alex Jones at all. But even the fact that they made the attempt to make that linkage should be absolutely appalling to anyone involved in the genuine grassroots new media phenomenon that we've been talking about in the Corbett Report for the last several weeks. Now, of course, this feeds into a much broader attack vector on the truth movement and the freedom movement in general by the corporate-controlled media that includes not only the MIAC reports that we've covered extensively in the Real News section of recent episodes of the Corbett Report, as well as in recent episodes of this podcast, but of course can also be seen in very recent articles like this one from the Wall Street Journal, April 17, 2009, Veterans, a focus of FBI extremist probe. Quote, the Federal Bureau of Investigation earlier this year launched a nationwide operation targeting white supremacists and militia, sovereign citizen extremist groups, including a focus on veterans from Iraq and Afghanistan, according to memos sent from Bureau headquarters to field offices. The initiative, dubbed Operation Vigilant Eagle, was outlined in February two months before a memo giving a similar warning was issued on April 7th by the Department of Homeland Security. Disclosure of the DHS memo this week has sparked controversy among some conservatives and veterans groups. Appearing on television talk shows Thursday, Homeland Security Secretary Janet Napolitano defended the assessment, but apologized to veterans who saw it as an accusation. This is an assessment of things just to be wary of, not to infringe on constitutional rights, certainly not to malign our veterans, she said on NBC Today's show. The document outlining Operation Vigilant Eagle cite a surge in activity by such groups. The memos say the FBI's focus on veterans began as far back as December, during the final weeks of the Bush administration, when the Bureau's Domestic Counterterrorism Division formed a special joint working group with the Defense Department. End quote. 
Again, the entire Bush administration war on terror apparatus is now being wielded by the Democratic Obama administration against anyone who dissents against that very administration. The entire war on terror apparatus was always meant to go against the citizens of the United States, and now that the minority are the Republicans, it will be right-wing, homegrown extremism that is the target of the attacks, exactly as the right-wing, homegrown extremism threat was blown up by the Clinton administration in the mid-1990s. And of course, we all know how that ended up with the demonization of the entire militia movement in the mid-1990s by the Clinton administration after the OKC bombing. Of course, at the end of episode 38 of this podcast, we went over how various members of the freedom and truth movements of the mid-1990s, and of course the militia movement of the mid-1990s, which was a growing phenomenon at the time, were demonized in the wake of those attacks, including, of course, Jack McClam, who is, of course, one of the most vocal opponents of the New World Order regime, and has been for many decades. And Mark Kornke, who, if my listeners have not heard of him before, I suggest they check into, as a powerful speaker against the New World Order regime, who has been working tirelessly at least for the last two decades, including his extensive experience organizing the militias against New World Order infiltration. Of course, in the wake of the OKC bombing attack back in the mid-1990s, suspicion fell on everyone involved with the militia movement and everyone who was concerned about constitutional rights under the Clinton administration. And, of course, that included Mark Kornke, who was ridiculously grilled by Sam Donaldson of ABC News. This ridiculous interview now survives on the internet and has been preserved by the Corbett Report on veracityvideos.com. Let's listen to a short audio extract of that ridiculous interview by Sam Donaldson of Mark Kornke in the wake of the OKC bombing attack. The man the two militiamen we interviewed accused of hatching a plot to attack Camp Grayling, Mark Kornke. His day job is that of maintenance man at the University of Michigan, but whose off-duty hours are spent in violent opposition to the U.S. government. We set up our camera in Lorene's Village Cafe in Dexter, Michigan. Mr. Kornke, you're known as Mark from Michigan, and you're also known by people as someone who espouses violence against the federal government. What are you angry about? Well, first of all, uh, we're not uh, espousing violence against the federal government, but we are recommending that we should be prepared, if need be, to defend ourselves in the event of attempted tyranny. And in fact, uh, I'm not angry, uh, but I am concerned, and I want to make sure that they understand that there are many millions of Americans are concerned with what is an obvious attempt to erode the Constitution and Bill of Rights of the United States. Well, you say you don't espouse violence, but we've just seen you hold up rope and say you can get about four politicians and a hundred feet of rope, and we've seen you brandish an AK-47. Uh, what do you call that? Well, actually, if you look, and you are, depending on which film that you have there, you might notice that off to my left were a veritable plethora of politicians, uh, some of which uh, couldn't stop uh, chuckling at the comment it was directed at them, including several congressmen or individuals who were running for a congressional race. Uh, that was not accidental. And it was meant to uh, prove a point uh, with uh, what is called coffin humor, and I think you're familiar with that yourself. You've seen it if you've uh, discussed this with military people or even people who are in government. So when you make those kind of threats, they were really just a joke? Well, in this particular case, and this was not a threat, the idea was to drive the point home that uh, if we are not careful, and this is one of the problems we are seeing right now with bad government or situations where the politician is apparently ignoring the voice of the American people, much like we saw with GATT, and also with NAFTA, where politicians stated that in the face of 9 to 1 or 11 to 1 opposition against it, they passed it anyway. Traditionally, in the United States, the American people, as in 1775, uh, eventually realized that uh, there was a need to change the system. And in this case, we do not recommend violence in offense, but if attacked, we'll defend. All right. Do you know Mr. Eric Maloney, who was the sergeant major of the 6th Brigade of the Michigan Militia? Only by 
second party acquaintance, and we've seen him in uh, at least one other meeting where we uh, denounced what it was he was trying to advocate, where he was trying to claim that... Uh, now, let me ask you was. about that, because Mr. Maloney claims that you were the one who came up with the idea of blowing up Russian vehicles at Camp Grayley. And that issue, well, thank you very much. That issue was something that was similar to the events we saw over the last 72 hours. It was a media-orchestrated affair. And, in fact, uh, we dealt with that very quickly. Uh, we all, uh, were very public about it. And, in fact, uh, though uh, most people are not familiar, a tremendous amount of information was publicly available on both the meetings that took place, which had nothing to do with the Russian vehicles. Well, you're telling, me, you're telling me, sir, that you did not in any event ever advocate an attack on Camp Grayley. Is that what you're telling me? Absolutely. As a matter of fact, we can access Camp Grayley at our discretion any time that we wish. What do you mean by that? Um, we have access to it for uh, for uh, Department of uh, Defense uh, DCM shooting on a regular basis. We can enter the facility or any other military facility. Do you know Timothy McVeigh, who is the suspect in the Oklahoma City bombing? As far as we know, although again, we've had virtually uh, millions of people we've met in the last six months, and that is literally because we've been traveling the country uh, speaking in 44 out of the 50 states, meeting with militia, constitutional pay, uh, constitutionalists, people from all over the uh, patriot movement across the country, and that's patriot movement means just anybody that's involved with constitutional issues. Uh, we may have in passing, but we are going to have to check notes, uh, see if there's anything on film. You say check notes, but uh, Brian Ross of our staff talked to someone in Florida today, had in his report, someone who says they saw you in Florida about 18 months ago with Timothy McVeigh. Well, that's another thing we have to check because it's much like the reports we had over the last 72 hours that I was wanted by the FBI, ATF, and local law enforcement. Well, I'm sorry, I don't understand. What do you mean you have to check? I mean, you know, do you not, whether you were in Florida with Timothy McVeigh or not? Not that we know of, but again, I'm going to be realistic about this. We, most of our meetings that we've had, which are public meetings, by the way, have anywhere from 700 to 5,000 people in attendance. And I meet, just as you do, Sam, when you travel around the country, virtually thousands and thousands of people. But we do keep notes, and contrary to most people, we have a tendency to keep them rather than uh, throw them out. Well, would you check your notes for us and see if you were in Florida about 18 months ago with Timothy McVeigh? No, wait a minute. No, I didn't say that. We have been in Florida, but we have not, to our knowledge, or with the exception for her in, again, I'm being very honest about this, in passing, if he was there, there's no way for us to verify it. But, Mr. Cornsey, the, the, the suggestion is not that he was in a crowd somewhere in Florida, but that you and he were traveling together. You would know that if you were doing that. No, correction. Correction, we have not traveled together in any way, shape, or form. I would remember somebody, yes, traveling in the same vehicle with me, I think. All right, so you, you don't know Timothy McVeigh unless he's just somebody that was in a crowd, and you might check your notes to see if the name comes up. That is correct. All right, so what about the Oklahoma City bombing? Did you have anything to do with that at all? In no way, shape, or form did we have anything to do with the bombing, uh, except that we do have concern now that the evidence is preserved and that the parties that have been arrested remain alive. Excuse me, did you suggest yesterday that the U.S. government might have bombed that building itself? Well, uh, from the evidence that we've seen, and I might remind you, yes, we do have a, we, by the way, as Sam might mention to the audience, we do have a radio program of our own Monday through Friday, one hour a day, five days a week, 52 weeks a year, and as has been the case in the past, we have made a point of... Uh, collecting information on actions of this type in your own media coverage it was admitted that a series of devices my question was uh, mr cornsey did you suggest that the u.s government might have bombed that building in oklahoma city and i'll explain i'm qualifying that myself you'll notice i never have a chance to make short statements i think there is a possibility and it's uh, unfortunately with more evidence is becoming more uh, more questionable as time goes by all right we've about reached the end of our time on the intelligence report you sign off by saying Death, Republic, death, death to the new world order. We shall prevail. Yeah, death to the new world order. We shall prevail. What do you mean by that? Well, I think, and I, I was, I was going to question this. So, the Oklahoma had a very interesting uh, and exciting experience here last year in their Oklahoma House of Representatives anti-new world order resolution, enrolled House Resolution Number 1047. <coughs> Excuse me. And as we have said. It is our objective to make sure that the uh, New World Order, of course, uh, does not take the country. We are constitutionalists. We believe in a limited republic. Death to the New World Order. What do you mean by oh, death? Absolutely. That's a figure of speech. Absolutely. Yeah, you don't really mean death. Well, uh, as far as the New World Order is concerned, uh, well, we don't plan on surrendering the Constitution the Bill of, and the Bill of Rights, so absolutely to the New World Order with regard to its attempt to manipulate or create a one-world government. Mm, yes, death to the New World Order. All right. Thank you very much, Mr. Cornkey, for coming in tonight. Thank you, Sam.
Of course, it's perfectly clear now in 2009 how the media today is exactly like the controlled corporate media in 1995 that was so hell-bent on taking the genuine quest for human freedom against corporate control and against government control and trying to link that to ridiculous extreme groups that are willing to blow up federal government buildings Again, the corporate media today is absolutely no different from the corporate media back then, and the same ridiculous lies are still being used, and they're going to try to use the same ridiculous smears over and over again, hoping that something will stick, even though every single one of their accusations is a proven lie. Of course, one thing that we have on our side is history, and the history specifically of free humanity standing up to the tyrants that would try to keep us under their thumb. We will not fall for their lies, and we will not fall for their disinformation about what the free people of America, and indeed every free nation on earth, really feel about what is taking place around us right now. And perhaps one of the greatest expressions of that can be found in another anniversary from this date, which is so full of anniversaries, April 19th, 1775, which of course started the Battle of Lexington and the attempt by the British government to seize the guns of the American colonists in Lexington, Massachusetts, April 19th, 1775. Of course, that started the American Revolutionary War, and to mark that incredibly important date in the history of human civilization, there is a new group which is attempting to once again spark and reignite the passion for liberty that lies dormant in humanity even as we speak. You know, you know I apologize to Stuart Rhodes, but I bet he got a big response the last time he was on from Oath Keepers. Uh, they're having a big move to get even more people out to take the oath against firing on them U.S. citizens, confiscating guns, doing things like that. But side issue, Stuart, uh, what do you think of them openly announcing they're, they're terraforming the planet? I just came on and I just caught the tail end of your of your uh, discussion about that. That's pretty amazing. So I'll have to, I'll have to uh, defer until I listen to the rest of what you said. All right, well, we're going to come back to you and give you some time to talk, and I want to have you back up for a full hour in the near future after this happened. In a nutshell, tell us about Oath Keepers. Very exciting. Uh, so the so the police and military uphold their oath and don't go to war with the people, which will also be very healthy for them. Absolutely. This, this, this is our mission is to, as I told you last time, is to make sure that, you know, the men with the big guns are on our side. And the response has been amazing. And, uh one thing I want the listeners to know about is, is we are rallying on Lexington Green on April the 19th, which is the anniversary of the first shot in the American Revolution, the shot heard around the world. And we're going to be there on the same exact spot where that first took place, and we're going to read out our declaration uh, of orders we will not obey, uh, read them aloud, and reaffirm our oaths to defend the Constitution against all enemies, foreign and domestic. And we're talking, uh, we've got active-duty military uh, flying in from all over the country, active duty police officers. What day is that? Oh, April 19th. Ah, 1775, baby. That's when April, it all started. That's right. April 19th, 1775 was when the, uh, under martial law, under General Gage, he sent out his, his regulars to go confiscate the cannon and the powder at Concord. And on the way in Lexington, the Captain Parker and the Lexington, uh, the Massachusetts militia. Uh, mustered on the green in, in face of the British, and that's where he had the first shots fired in, in the American Revolution. That's where it all began. And so we're going to be standing there, and that, that's where we're going to have our first public meeting as Oath Keepers is going to be right there. All of the staged, manipulated, or provocateured mass shootings will not stop the liberty movement, and the ridiculous smears and lies of the people in the controlled corporate media will not stop the truth from coming out. I once again exhort all of my listeners to not take anything that I've said as the truth, but simply to look into things for yourself and to make your own decisions based on your own research. 
And of course, the documentation list for today's episode will give you a start as to where to begin looking for information. But again, look for your own information and trust what you will with your own two eyes. Do not take my word for it. I exhort you to begin this quest of taking up the mantle of liberty and freedom against the oppressive tyrants that would seek to control you and not taking anyone's word for what is happening around you. It is only by becoming politically engaged and politically engaging others through your thoughts, deeds, and actions that we will ever begin to have an effect on the mainstream paradigm. Together, we will be able to bring this information into the mainstream and to make it known and to make the truth come to light. But if we are divided amongst each other, that will never happen. Once again, get involved and do your own research. That's it for today. I am your host, James Corbett, reminding you that the podcast will be going on an extended hiatus for the next two weeks but we'll be rejoining you again in mid-May. So please keep watching CorbettReport.com and AlqaedaDoesn'tExist.com in the meantime, and please join me again for another edition of this podcast in mid-May. Paul Revere set the nation on its ear And the shot at Lexington heard round the world When the British fired in the early dawn The war of independence had begun The die was cast, the rebel flag unfurled And on to Concord marched the foe To seize the arsenal, there you know Waking folks, searching all around Till our militia stopped them in their tracks At the old North Bridge we turned them back And chased those red coats back to Boston town And the shot heard round the world was the start of the revolution The minute men were ready on the move A lot of people before us sacrificed and died in the defense of liberty and the fight against tyranny. A lot of people died so we'd have the little bit of freedoms we've got. They're precious. They were paid for in blood. I want you to take action because they can kill us individually, but they cannot kill ideas. Ideas are eternal. Ideas, when they're the truth, are invincible. And ideas are bulletproof. And I'm here to tell you, I don't need you to thank me and tell me I've done a good job. I've done nothing but my duty. I discovered a bunch of bloodthirsty scum.